Uh, we've expanded the rights to uh, bear arms, to carry, to possess victory upon victory. The move made by this governor was the was a death throw. It was pure desperation. And even after she did it, a bunch of dudes showed up in Albuquerque and were like, nah. And they showed up armed. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Arm Scholar Podcast. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be responding to a Tim Pool video in a discussion that they had about the state of New Mexico, what the governor is doing with the public health order, the TRO that was put in place by one of the judges there in New Mexico, and then the response of the New Mexico governor where she amended the public health order and now she's trying to put something else in place. Tim Pool's take on all this is that we are winning the Second Amendment fight, and in some ways I agree with him, and in other ways I don't. So in this video, I'm gonna be giving just my, my uh, belief on what's going on in the 2A fight, what I believe is going on in New Mexico, and then kind of where the 2A fight is going from here. Let's jump into that news from the post-millennial federal judge blocks New Mexico governor's firearm carry ban. Amazing. On Wednesday, a federal judge blocked New Mexico Governor Michelle Luan Grisham's temporary ban on the carrying of firearms in the state with high crime rates. U.S. District Judge David Urias issued a temporary restraining order following a hearing spurred on by a series of civil lawsuits filed against the governor by pro-gun activist groups who argued the ban infringed on citizens' constitutional rights. As Reuters reports, Urias sided with opponents of the move, agreeing that it went against the rights of law-abiding citizens to carry firearms for self-defense and recent Supreme Court rulings on the issue. They just want the right to carry guns, he said. In the days since Grisham signed the executive order, she has faced criticism from within New Mexico and across the country. Uh, and especially they're going to mention that the AG of New Mexico said that he would not defend the governor. That means when it came to these lawsuits... She can be standing up there by herself being like, I should be allowed to do this. And the judge is going to be like, yeah, sorry, no, you have no legal arguments and you lose. So there's a lot going on there, but I just kind of want to respond to the last thing. Um, yes, the attorney general in the state of New Mexico came out and said that he would not defend uh, what the governor is doing here with her public health order um, because it's clearly unconstitutional, mainly because the AG is not pro two way. He actually tends to be more anti-gun. But he just didn't want to stick his neck out because there's been a lot of blowback within the Democratic Party against what's the, what the governor is doing here. So he didn't want to stick his neck out for her. So but it's not, you know, even though the governor, she is an attorney, she's not going to be actually defending uh, any of this in court. In fact, she didn't. What ended up happening is they just hire someone else. She has her own attorney uh, that the state hires out since the AG is not going to defend this case. So. There was an attorney present for the governor at the TRO hearings. Um, the, the attorney actually, I, she had a hard time. Um, you know, if you listen to the audio that took place during the TRO, TRO hearings, that attorney had an absolute horrible time trying to defend what the governor is doing here with the public health order. Uh, she wasn't served all the briefs. The judge didn't actually have to have the state present. He could have had those hearings on an ex parte basis, which means that the uh, governor in the state of New Mexico and their representatives didn't even necessarily need to be present at the TRO hearing. But the judge there said that he wanted to give them an opportunity, even though they weren't served all the briefs and he, they really didn't have to be there. They were still there. But the attorney for the governor had an absolute horrible time. And in fact, 
at the beginning of the argument, the judge said that the uh, governor's attorney was going to have an uphill battle, especially in light of Bruin, because of what the Supreme Court said in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, talking about that you have a fundamental right to carry both, um, you know, in public, but also within your home under Heller. But, you know, Bruin was primarily focused on carry in public and the individual right to public carry um, to be able to defend yourself in public where it's most necessary. So it's it's interesting there. You know, Tim's talking about how the governor would have to defend herself um, in some way. She did in some way she didn't. They just hired outside counsel, essentially. Once again, while there are concerns about our gun rights, while we do need to repeal the NFA and abolish the ATF, that does not mean we are losing. In fact, we are winning. And for decades, we have expanded the right to keep and bury arms uh, keep and bury, keep and carry to bear and keep. Oh, man, I'm all over the place. Uh, we've expanded the rights to uh, bear arms, to carry, to possess. And I- I- people need to understand that you go back before 2008, it was still very difficult. So victory upon victory. The move made by this governor was the was a death throw. It was pure desperation. And even after she did it, a bunch of dudes showed up in Albuquerque and were like, nah, and they showed up armed. They're losing. They know they're losing. And here's the best part about it. It forced people like David Hogg and Ted Lieu to come out and be like, we actually oppose the, the banning of guns by decree. Here's the best part beyond that. When they started shutting everything down over COVID, saying that public health trumped the Constitution, this has forced them backwards. And now you've got personalities like David Hogg saying there is no public health exception to the Constitution. So this is the main part I really wanted to focus on um, in this whole discussion. You know, Tim Poole has come out multiple times talking about how, you know, in the Second Amendment fight, we've won, you know, specifically in the past. He's talked about how, you know, majority of states now are constitutional carry or permitless carry. And therefore, you know, we are winning the fight. And, and to some degree, yes, I agree. We are in a much better place right now than we've ever been. I mean, not ever been, you know, if you talk about our fundamental rights, you know, in 1791, when the Second Amendment was ratified and, you know, the following, you know, eras after. I think we're in the modern era. We're in a little bit better situation than we've been, especially in the last 10 years. Uh, we are getting some significant um, court decisions. We're getting some significant changes within states. But I wouldn't say that there has been a landfall. Now, they talk heavily about Bruin um, in later, you know, filled from all that remains talks about how the Bruin decision was almost like a nuclear bomb on a lot of what was going on in the courtrooms. And, and yes, that is absolutely true. Bruin changed a lot. Bruin just clarified what was already set out in Heller, McDonald, Caetano, and all these other Supreme Court Second Amendment cases. It, 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 it added some language that we could use going forward in some of these cases, but it didn't fundamentally change what we already had in Heller. It just, I guess, in some ways clarified. And it allowed us to use now new Supreme Court precedent um, in these cases to shut down some of the arguments that popped up in a post Heller world. Um, but, it, you know, it's Bruin was significant and it's been significant in helping us to win a lot of these court battles, this one especially. Now, when you look at the Bruin context, what Bruin did, Bruin did a lot of things. One of the first things that gets overlooked is it talked about that there is an individual fundamental right to carry out in public. Now, I know that doesn't seem significant. You they may, may think that that was already in place, but really after Heller, there was a lot of discussion in lower courts, um, in courts like the Ninth Circuit and the Second Circuit, where they were trying to say that under precedent in Heller and under the Second Amendment, that there was only a fundamental right to have a firearm within your home for self-defense, where they believe that 
the right only existed within your home. And the second you walked outside of your front door, all of a sudden that right magically disappeared. We treat no other right that way, but they were trying to treat the Second Amendment that way. Bruin went in and said, no, that's incorrect. The ability to keep and bear arms means you have the right to carry a firearm in public for self-defense where you need it the most. So that was one of the first things that Bruin did that gets overlooked quite a bit. And then Bruin went in and looked at um, the carry permit system that was in place in New York, where they had the proper cause standard. And under the proper cause standard, you would have to put forward a sufficient justification uh, for you to get a permit to carry concealed in the state of New York. And Oftentimes it was so burdensome, it was so overbearing the type of justification you would have to put forward that a lot of people were not getting their permits. So even though they had this May issue scheme, the discretion was completely up to the enforcement agency and oftentimes people weren't getting their permits. So that is what the Supreme Court looked at. And in Bruin, the Supreme Court looked at the May issue schemes and found that they were unconstitutional. This type of discretionary scheme for permits was not permissible. Instead, you had to use a more shall issue objective scheme where there maybe if you put in place some sort of system, um, it would have to be purely objective where if as long as you met criteria, then you would get your permit and you could carry in public for self-defense. Now, Bruin is not a perfect decision by any means. It's a good decision. But one of the issues which they talk about, I think, a little bit later is some of the Kavanaugh discussion where he talks about, you know, shall issue is still on the table. Um, these permitting systems are still on the table. And then you've seen some states after Bruin tried to you know, justify other permit schemes based on what they said in Bruin. So this is all to say that, yes, Bruin was an awesome decision. It changed a lot. It's helped us get a lot of wins. But I wouldn't say that, you know, it's been a complete landfall in a post-Bruin world. You've still seen significant pushback by states. Um, the states that always push back against this, like New York, passed the Concealed Carry Improvement Act just eight days after that Bruin decision. Then you had New Jersey pass something. Then you have uh, California recently just passed SB2, which I'm a plaintiff in one of the CRPA lawsuits uh, suing the state of California because of their concealed carry law that they passed in response to Bruin. So there has been a lot of pushback at a state level. You've had states pushing back against this. Um, you've seen states like Illinois. They just passed in a so-called assault weapon ban. You had Oregon and Washington push uh, various magazine bans and assault weapon bans and permitting systems. So you've seen some states actually get more ingrained in their gun control agenda and become more radical in a post-Bruin world. So Bruin has been amazing um, to stop some things, but it also kind of created an overcorrection on the other side where now they've overreached like what New Mexico is doing here, where they're trying to put in place even more radical things to kind of try to balance the, you know, to use a legal term, balance the equities behind what Bruin did for the pro 2 a side. Now you've seen a lot of states and anti-gun states go even further to try to outright ban some items or outright ban carry. And that's just at a state level. Then you've seen the ATF's response where the ATF has responded to a lot of these things by becoming even more overbearing. They passed the frames and receivers rule, you know, their implementation of bump stocks, their targeting of force reset triggers, and then the pistol brace rule. And then also the new Bipartisan Safe Communities Act, which now has led to their um, new rule that they're putting in place where they're targeting all private party transactions or all private party transfers, trying to get rid of this, um, you know, private sale mechanism that's been in place. So we've seen a lot of overcorrection. So to respond to Tim Pool, like, yes, we have got some significant wins. I think we are definitely stacking up more wins than we ever have. And even with a lot of these things that the anti-gun side is putting in place with the ETF, with state restrictions, we're winning in the lower courts right now against those things. 
but it's not like we've got a huge landfall. There is still a response from the other side, which there always has been, and they're trying to find ways to get around Bruin. Um, so yes, we are winning, but we also need to stay vigilant and we need to keep fighting and we can't just rest on our laurels thinking that Bruin is going to solve all of our issues because we, what we've seen is the other side has responded by trying to do even more radical things like they're doing in New Mexico. We forced their position back past the line. This is victory. This, this is, is oh. when you're talking about winning, this is something that's been on the top. I think I heard you guys talking about it last night and trying to describe it. Cause like, okay, say, say you have 10 victory points and there's two teams. Each team needs all 10 points to win. Mm. One of the teams has eight of them and your team has two. You would say you're losing. But then if you win a great battle and they all their their troops are gone now, they're they're fleeing backwards. And now you can go and you're about to take all all eight of those victory points because they have no defense. You might still technically be losing because you only control two of the victory points. But the momentum has shifted. I, I And that well, you could consider winning as a form of momentum and positioning. Yes. I think that's the part I agree with the most. It wouldn't be that we are winning or we've won the fight already. I think there's been a significant momentum shift, which is in our favor. So I agree most with that take. I think there's been a significant momentum shift that we can point to and point to a lot of these case decisions and a lot of the things that are going on in some you know positive states with constitutional carry and some other states that are putting in place some other pro to a laws in some lower court battles that we've won um, in some situations like this in New Mexico that we have gotten some positive decisions because of Bruin and point to those that say, look at this positive momentum shift that we didn't have prior a lot of times because courts didn't even want to address the Second Amendment issue. Here's another analogy. You are playing dodgeball and you have five players on one side and five on the other. For the first two thirds of the game, they've knocked out four of your players. And so there's one person left and it's like, man, we are losing that all of a sudden. The dude picks up the ball, they throw it, he bounces it back, hits one of their guys, knocks him out, they whip one, he catches it, another player's back in. Within a few minutes, it's now three players on your team, three players on their team, and you may be saying they've got so much power, but now they're starting to, to, to trip, they're stumbling yeah. over themselves, they're in panic, they're in disarray. You have picked up the momentum this, and you have begun to win. The moment. So again, this is something I agree with, and I, I kind of want to add some more legal context to add a little bit more meat on the bones about what is actually going on in the courtrooms. Now, um, you know, Temple's talking about how the momentum is shift and how the other side is scrambling because we've got a lot of momentum because of a post-Bruin decision. One of the important things that Bruin did is it struck down the use of the tiered-based scrutiny and interest balancing. So after Heller, after the Supreme Court's decision in Heller and McDonald, what happened in a lot of lower courts is that they used an analysis known as tiered-based scrutiny, where you have strict, strict scrutiny at the top, then you have intermediate scrutiny, and then you have things like rational basis at the bottom. Um, and so a lot of times they use tiered-based scrutiny. Most of the time, these 2A cases and, you know, in the Ninth Circuit and the Second Circuit and some of these anti-gun circuits fell under the intermediate scrutiny analysis. And then they use something known as interest balancing, where they weighed the public's interest against the uh, right. And a lot of times they would say the public interest outweighs the right. And therefore, what the government is doing is justified and they can put in place this type of restriction. This has been used, um, you know, a lot by lower courts, like in the Ninth Circuit with magazine bans, with ammunition restrictions, uh, concealed carry laws. Um, the 10 day waiting period it was used in. So that was in a, that was in place in a post Heller world in the after the Supreme Court's decision in Heller. So you had a lot of lower courts that just simply relied on interest balancing and tiered based scrutiny. And so what that led to well, quite often 
is that governments got carte blanche to put in place whatever restriction that they wanted. Um, they could pass almost any gun control law that they wanted. And they knew when they went to some of these favorable circuit courts like the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit would just simply put a rubber stamp on their law and say, yes, the public's interest is met. The government you know, is protecting the public's interest with this gun control law. It doesn't matter what the Second Amendment says. This is still in the public's interest, and therefore, it's still constitutional. And I think what happened is a lot of these attorney generals and a lot of these states got so used to not actually having to litigate these cases. They got so used to not actually having to make legal arguments. Instead, they are just relying purely on public interest arguments. And they did that for years and years and years. That's all they put forward were public interest arguments. All they put forward were vague statistics and vague arguments about how this law is going to protect the public, like what's going on in New Mexico. In New Mexico, this whole public health order is purely public interest. It's only public interest arguments. There are no legal arguments behind it. There's no historical arguments behind it. It is purely public interest. They're saying we have to do this in the public's interest, bleeding heart arguments about deaths, about suicides, about whatever, crime and violence, and therefore we need to put this in place. And that is what a lot of states had done in the past. And that is what the New Mexico governor is putting forward uh, for justification of what she's doing with her public health order. It's purely public interest arguments. She's not putting forward any legal arguments, no historical arguments, nothing like that to justify this restriction that she's putting in place. Place. So what happened in the legal world, again, like I said, these states got so used to making these weak arguments, these weak public interest arguments. And then all of a sudden we got the Bruin decision And the Bruin decision said that we can no longer use interest balancing. There is no more tier based scrutiny. There is no more public interest arguments. The analysis that you use when looking at these government restrictions and these government regulations and these laws is text as informed by history and tradition, and it's relevant history and tradition. And what the Supreme Court said in Bruin is that these tier-based scrutiny, these public interest arguments are no longer valid. You can no longer use that type of analysis. Instead, when you look at government restrictions and regulations, the analysis you use in the Second Amendment context is text as informed by relevant history and tradition. That's what this shirt says. Um, if you're interested in this shirt, this channel shirt, I'll leave links down below. But that is the test, that is the analysis when it comes to the Second Amendment context. And what Thomas said in the majority opinion is that these government agencies, these states, the federal government, whoever, when they put in place these gun control laws, they have to be able to point to history, analogs, traditions dating back to 1791, which justify these restrictions. If they do not have historical support for what they are doing, then it must be struck down as unconstitutional. And what that has led to now is a lot of these states and these AGs and these representatives of the gun control side actually having to finally do their job. They're actually having to finally litigate these cases and put forward evidence to justify these bans and these restrictions that they're putting in place. And they're having a hard time doing that. One, because they're not used to actually having to make legal arguments anymore. They got so used to not having to do that. So their briefs oftentimes are hilarious to read. Their arguments oftentimes in the courtrooms are hilarious because they're still trying to rely purely on public interest, bleeding hard arguments. But even more so, which is super hard for them is the fact that they do not have any historical evidence to justify these restrictions. There is very, very 
slim historical evidence dating back to 1791 that would justify a lot of these restrictions. They're, they're very hard pressed to find historical evidence to support magazine bans, carry bans and anything like that. So that is what's caused this drastic shift, which has resulted in us winning. This New Mexico gun ban attempt is exactly what I thought should happen in a just society is that a governor makes a tyrannical move. The, the people come out, they protest, and then even the attorney general refuses to work with the tyrant. And that's it's very encouraging. But I've always got to uh, tell people it always depends on what your players do once momentum shifts, because you're one mistake away from yep. ending up, you know, back where you started. And so it's kind of like right now we're seeing that, hey, the public still does not have a stomach for government overreach. That's amazing. But the problem is this is sort of conditioning the Overton window. I know you guys saw the whole news with uh, UNC Chapel Hill with the shooting or not the almost shooting the dangerous individual. Right. Well, that right there happened literally a day after apparently the March for Our Lives was in the courthouse shout or not the courthouse legislature shouting down their people. So if you get something like that, how that just gives them a nice little barometer for how much fear they need in order to condition people. If, if Democrats are coming out now saying you cannot overrule the Constitution with with a public health order. But three years ago, they literally claimed you could. We've won that battle. So I, I think this is an interesting point I need to make. I think the Democratic response and the anti-gun response to what the governor is doing here is less about that they don't like what she's doing. They just don't like how far it went. I think the New Mexico governor's executive order in this public health order would have been more palatable to her own side and maybe wouldn't have gotten as much pushback on both sides if it wasn't just her banning carry outright in entire areas. If she would have, and I think a lot of this also comes down to maybe this New Mexico governor um, not being engaged in this two-way fight that much, you know, unlike people like Gavin Newsom and his administration in California and some of the, you know, Hockle in, in New York, a lot of these states that are heavily always trying to attack the right to keep and bear arms, they're much more in tuned about the things that they can try to get away with, even in their own party. I think if the New Mexico governor would have came out and targeted, you know, specific sensitive locations, like we saw California and New York do, where they are enhancing the sensitive location restrictions, where they're naming um, more expansively what areas are sensitive locations and therefore carries off, you know, is is not permissible at all. Um, you know, in, in California and New York still are hyper overbearing. They have this restriction where you have to actually go and ask for the business to carry at that location. It's shifting the burden, um, you know, so it's still hyper restrictive, but it's a little bit more targeted. Here, this New Mexico governor wasn't nuanced at all in her approach. Instead, she did the one thing that we said they wanted to do all along. She was the only one who just did it outright. She just said public health order, ban, carry, open and concealed altogether, just blanket ban. And I think that's where her own side said, hey, you can't like at least try to be nuanced in what you're doing. Now, this isn't um, saying I agree with her side at all. I think what they don't like is it exposed their true agenda. It showed that they actually just want to ban carry outright, but they want to do it in a more nuanced way and try to get away with it. And I think that has now led to even after the TRO. So the judge issued the restraining order against her, her original executive public health order. And then she went in and amended it. And what did she do in her amending? She amended it in a way where now it's only targeting 
specific sensitive locations. Like I said, you know, maybe she could have got away with originally or and her party would have accepted originally. Um, so now she's targeting public parks and playgrounds. And where she's getting that from is because I think she finally did her homework and looked at what her her anti-gun colleagues like Newsom and Hockle did with their concealed carry laws that they passed in response to Bruin. So the Concealed Carry Improvement Act was the first one passed only eight, eight, eight days after the Bruin decision. What that one did is it had a whole list of sensitive locations. There were lawsuits that were brought against the CCIA, primarily being the Antonyuk case, which was brought by Gun Owners of America, was litigated at the district court level, the federal district court. Um, TROs were sought, preliminary injunctions were sought, and they were granted, but they weren't granted in full. They, the judges there went through and looked at those list of sensitive locations and found one of the, you know, some of the ones that they allowed the state to proceed forward with included public parks and playgrounds that included, um, you know, you had the uh, Antonyuk case that was New York. Then you had a New Jersey judge do the same thing where they said, OK, maybe the state could ban carry in public parks and playgrounds in New Jersey. And then you're probably going to see maybe something similar play out in California. So what the governor did is she looked at those other cases finally and said, OK, what did they get away with? Maybe I can get away with that as well through my executive order. And so that is what she's targeting now. So that's all to say, I think the big pushback she got is because she just went for the whole enchilada instead of being more um, targeted in her approach, which a lot of these other anti-gun states and anti-gun governors know to be a little bit more targeted in their approach, make it seem like it's not a complete carry ban, even though it is actually an outright carry ban. So I would argue that California's carry ban and New York's carry ban is a pretty much comprehensive carry ban. But at least in their language, they're trying to hide the ball. They're trying to hide the fact by saying that, yeah, we're still going to issue permits. We're still going to permit carry. But really, when you read the full text, you find out that, OK, yeah, you really can't carry um, pretty much anywhere. Um, almost carry is banned everywhere because of how the list of sense of locations and the additional restrictions that they put in place in their law makes it so that you can't carry at all. But at least they put put in place or their argument is at least they put in place some sort of mechanism that you could still get a permit. And at least on the face, they're saying you can still carry. So I think that's the pushback that she got from her own party is that she was just not nuanced at all in her approach. Instead, she did the one thing that they uh, tried to never do, which is just outright ban a carry and just say it's an outright carry ban. I mean, it's, this is definitely a white pill um, overall. The, the response from. The rest of the the country, you know, people outside of of New Mexico, I think is is probably the the thing that I is most impactful to me. Um, I don't personally trust uh, Ted Lieu or David Hogg to actually have much of a stomach for um, supporting individual rights and stuff like that, honestly. Um, but at the same time, the fact that they spoke up was good. The fact that the AG won't defend her is very, very good. The fact that the mayor was like, you know, against it as well. That's very, very good. Um, the, the hesitation and the stepping back from her own party had to do with how this directly conflicts with what the Supreme Court said in Bruin. If you look at Bruin and you look at what she is doing with this public health order, you will see that this will not stand up in court at all. Um, even in the most anti-gun courts, this will not stand up, specifically also because of what Thomas said in Bruin. In Bruin, Thomas explicitly said 
that a state like New York could not just simply make the entire island of Manhattan a sense of location and completely ban carry at that location because it's a sense of location. That is exactly what the New Mexico governor is doing here with her public health order. And it directly conflicts with what Thomas said a state and a governor could not do. So, you know, all of her party, all of these anti-gun individuals like David Hogg and all these people, the attorney general, all of them looking at this, they're saying, wow, she did exactly what the Supreme Court said she's not supposed to do. This will not uphold in court. If this ever made it to the Supreme Court, it will not hold up. And that's why they're stepping back. They are not willing to put their necks out for this because they know in no way, shape or form will this uphold in court. Firearms Policy Coalition, the uh, they're they're on X there at gun policy. And you should definitely follow them. You should probably become a member as well. Follow um, FBC. They did a really good job of of uh, live tweeting it today. And inside the courtroom, the 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 judge just didn't have much patience for the argument being love it. arguments being made by the the state. You know, the the fact is the Bruin case is essentially a nuclear weapon when it comes to the right to keep and bear arms. Bruin found that, you know, you have the right to keep and bear. You can keep it on you and carry it with you. And it's not a second class right. The way that legislatures or I'm sorry, uh, the way that that uh, administrations had treated the Second Amendment up until Bruin is that it wasn't actually a right. It was a privilege. And the Bruin case has made it clear that that is not acceptable. And this, the judge today specifically said that Bruin has made it clear that we do not have the right to interpret the law. The law is as it says that the the right to keep and bear arms isn't going to be infringed. It's outside of the purview of the federal of the of the federal and consequently the state governments because the constitution is the supreme law of the land. So it's outside of the purview of any government to say you can't you can't have a gun to carry on you, barring a, a you know due process. I uh, I think the next. So, I mean, that's a great point by Phil, and I think I appreciate that. Not only does he seem very in tune with this fight, I know I've seen him kind of on some of these Second Amendment, like, you know, Twitter sphere spaces. Um, you know, the fact that he knows who Firearms Policy Coalition is, is a big thing because a lot of people who tend to be or claim that they're pro-gun, they only think of the only 2A organization as the NRA, but the NRA really isn't part of a lot of these these fights nowadays. Um you know, FBC is an amazing organization. A lot of you guys know that I used to be in-house counsel for FBC. I used to be one of their attorneys. Uh, FBC does great work. Organizations like SAF do great work. Gun Arms of America does great work. Um, so there's a lot of amazing two-way organizations. CRPA, which is the NRA state affiliate of California. You know, the state organizations do a lot of amazing things. And a lot of people don't know that the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin case um, you know, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association is a state affiliate of the NRA. So not to say that, you know, some things that the NRA does, um, you know, that they don't do anything. A lot of their state organizations do amazing things. It's just the national org is not super engaged in the fight anymore, in my opinion. So it's awesome that Phil is, you know, plugged into this issue. And it seems like he's very familiar with what the Bruin decision did. And he's absolutely right. You know, what happened in Bruin is it was just a huge course correction. And that's why, you know, we it's it's a positive momentum shift. And that's why I say that, you know, maybe we aren't completely, we haven't won the entire battle, but we are winning. And the momentum has definitely shifted because of Bruin. And, and one of those main things, like I mentioned, is because 
the Supreme Court in Bruin tied the court's hands in the type of analysis that they have to do when looking at these types of cases. And the analysis is text as informed by relevant history and tradition. So if the government wants to put in place some sort of restriction and it touches on a fundamental aspect of the Second Amendment, you know, if it touches on an arm, if it touches on some sort of conduct protected by the text of the Second Amendment, your right to keep or bear arms, if it's infringing on the ability of the people to keep and bear arms, the government is putting in place some sort of restriction. They have to justify that restriction by pointing to relevant history and tradition dating back to 1791 or some sort of analog, which means that. You know, if there is a modern government law, for example, let's talk about New Mexico. If New Mexico wants to put in place this public health argument, this public health executive order, which bans carrying an entire city, they have to go back and point to a historical analog or historical evidence in 1791 or the surrounding era, very close to the surrounding era, that would justify you know, them banning carry completely an entire city or an entire area. And they're going to have a hard time doing that because there was no government law, no state law that would completely ban those types of areas. You know, one of the most, uh, you know, a lot of the times when I see these things pop up, reminds me of Tombstone when, you know, in Tombstone, they tried to ban carry in the city and there was a ton of pushback because it was just so out of the norm it, to completely ban people from being able, you know, and of course, Tombstone is much later than 1791. But, you know, just to point out like how of, of foreign this concept was that you would have some sort of government agency, the state, the federal government, whoever saying or you just even the city itself saying that you cannot carry at all at, you know, in the entire city. It was just so foreign. And that's the hard time that these states like New Mexico are having. And a lot of um, these attorneys trying to represent these states for these various bans on arms and bans on carry. You know, they're having a hard time justifying the restrictions because they are stuck to having to find historical evidence. And a lot of times. Um, which is an interesting point. A lot of times the historical evidence that they are putting forward to try to justify their restrictions are racist laws. They are now relying on historically racist uh, laws and regulations um, that went against African-Americans, that went against certain religious groups. They are now trying to use those to justify their modern bans. Um, and some judges um are seeing through that. And some judges are saying that that's absolutely unacceptable. And, and, you know, a lot of times kind of telling <laughs> the states that they should never put forward that type of argument. And then there are some judges that are, are allowing that to happen. Um, but a lot of times that's the type of his history that these states are having to use to justify their restrictions because they really don't have any other support for what they're doing because when our founders put in place the Second Amendment and they said shall not infringed, they meant shall not infringed. And that's why there's not really any historical evidence to support these types of bans. Next victory we need to make is I don't know how we do it because it's going to require the Supreme Court, but I will I have no problem saying this. I have no legal experience. None. Did not go to law school. I've only been in court I a handful of times. Bring me on. And the Supreme Court justices are wrong on on the ability of a state to require a permit. The right shall not be infringed. Yeah. If I am required to pay money in order to get permission from the government, permission, permit, mm -hmm. then uh, they've infringed my rights. Yeah. And the Supreme and this was this is Kavanaugh who said, well, they can require permits, but they can't use it as a shield and to manipulate 
basically what was happening was these states were saying, yes, you can get a gun, just felt this permit. And then they crumple it up and throw it in the garbage. They were using it as a way to block you from getting guns. They said, no, if you take the, the form, you have to issue the permit. They're still trying to find uh, loopholes. New Jersey's loophole was uh, you had to have uh, you have to have proof of some kind of threat and you have to have reason why the threat exists. So it's like you have to be rich or famous. Basically. Yeah. So this is really the last section that I want to address in this discussion. And I think this is an important point. Um, the reason why I say Bruin wasn't a perfect decision is because of this very point that Tim Pool is making. Um, in Bruin, they were addressing whether a may issue permitting scheme was constitutional or not. And ultimately, the Supreme Court came to the decision that no may issue schemes is unconstitutional. Now, what he's alluding to there was the concurrence by Kavanaugh, where he said that a shall issue scheme is likely or potentially constitutional if it operates as a pure shall issue scheme, where as long as someone applies, they meet objective standards like paying a, a flat fee or whatever, going through a background check, they're not a prohibited person, X, Y, and Z. If they meet these objective standards, then they're issued their permit and they can exercise their right to keep and bear arms in public. What the Supreme Court was alluding to is that potentially a shall issue permitting scheme would be constitutional. There's been two responses to that. You've had states like New York and California, New Jersey, just completely try to buck the system saying, we're gonna put in place a shall issue scheme, but it's only shall issue on its face. Um, if you meet these objective standards, you'll get a permit, but then what they are trying to do on the back end, first, they're trying to make the permitting scheme just so overbearing and so costly and, and so time consuming now that a lot of people won't go through it. But then on the back end, make it so that you're, if you, even if you get a permit, your permit's almost useless because they have a hyper restrictive list of sensitive locations and these standards where you would have to get the permission from a business to enter into that business or, or public property or whatever. Uh, you would have to get the permission to carry there, making it so that really you can't carry anywhere. You know, some people, you know, Robert uh, from Tua Updates, he calls it the vampire rule, where essentially you would have to invite in the concealed carry holder. The business would have to invite them in for them to carry there. Um, so you have had some states that have responded in that way, where they are creating a shall issue scheme, permanent scheme on its face but it's operating still in a way that is hyper restrictive. Now, again, this is something that Kavanaugh said a state should not do. You know, in that same concurrence, he said, if there was a shall issue regime, that's only shall issue in its face, but operates in a way that's so hyper restrictive, there could still be challenges to that shall issue scheme and they would, could still be struck down as unconstitutional. Kavanaugh said that in that very concurrence. States like New York, New Jersey, and California decided that they wanna go down that route. So that's one response. The other response has been a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more interesting. Then you had states like Washington, I believe, which put in place the permit to purchase scheme. Now, a permit to purchase is nothing new. You have other states that kind of have a similar permit to purchase, like California with their firearm safety certificate. But the approach that they took with the permit to purchase is a little bit different. They tried to use the language of Kavanaugh in the language of Bruin in justifying their permit to purchase, where they said, as long as we have a permit that operates in a shall issue way, we under Bruin are allowed to put in place this permit. Now it's not a carry permit, but they're saying the Supreme Court said a shall issue carry permit was permissible in Bruin. Therefore, if we put in place a shall issue purchase permit, it would also be permissible. 
So that's why I say Bruin isn't a perfect decision. It has left some things to interpretation or some ways that states have craftily tried to bend some of the language in a way that they're trying to put in place other types of permits. Now, I'm sure the permit to purchase is not going to be the only thing. Maybe there's going to be permits to possess certain firearms, uh, certain so-called, they'll call them, you know, permits to possess so-called assault weapons. I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to do that, not to give them any ideas, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to do that. They'll try to say, you know, Bruin said that shall issue permits are permissible. And so they'll try to create a bunch of shall issue permits, making it so that you have to have all these crazy permits to exercise your rights. So yes, Bruin was an amazing decision. It's led to some amazing things. Um, the momentum has shifted because of Bruin, but you will always have states that will try to defy what the Supreme Court has said. They will try to still get around the text of the Second Amendment. This is nothing new. We're going to have to keep fighting these fights. We're going to have to keep fighting states like New Mexico when they pop up. Um, so, you know, kind of just to respond to Tim Pool in this whole discussion. Yes, we are winning. The momentum has shifted, um, but we have not completely won yet. Um, I wouldn't agree that we've completely won yet. I think we need to stay hyper vigilant. Um, but I think things are trending in the right direction. And we will have states like my state, like California, who will try to still put in place even more hyper restrictive laws. They will try to get even more tyrannical. And we will keep fighting against those in these courtrooms and hopefully get elevated to a place where maybe you have the Supreme Court step in and issue even more positive decisions. Right now, you have the Supreme Court who is going to hear the Rahimi case this next term. The Rahimi case deals with the gun violence restraining order uh, section of federal law and whether or not that violates the Second Amendment. That's going to be a very interesting case. Um, a lot of people are very concerned because the facts of that case are not super positive because Mr. Rahimi is not a uh, awesome person. He is very clearly a bad person who um, a lot of people would agree should not have a firearm. And he is the vehicle right now for that lawsuit. And a lot of people are afraid that that is going to leave to lead to a negative decision by the Supreme Court, which maybe is going to cause some language to be out there, which would cut against Bruin and would give states like California, New Mexico and others the ability to now go in even after Bruin point to some new language in the Rahimi case uh, to justify restrictions and, and things like that. So Rahimi is one of the cases that we're looking forward to. There's also the cargo case that is currently looming at the Supreme Court level, and that deals with the ATF's bump stock restrictions. Um, all indications are that the Supreme Court will probably have to take that case up because of the way that, that that's positioned procedurally. So there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of positive things that are going to go um, go on going forward. Um, a lot of things we are looking forward to. But again, you know, we have to stay hyper vigilant because if we don't and we give the other side the opportunity, they will become more nuanced in their approach and they will try to find ways around the Supreme Court's decision like they did in, uh, you know, at, in a post Heller world like they did after Heller. So, you know, I really appreciate every time Tim Pool and all the, the crew there talks about the Second Amendment. It's always an important discussion. This in no way is trying to bash them or anything. I don't think I was bashing them. But a lot of things I agree with them in just me trying to add some additional context, um, you know, from someone who's following all these fights every single day. Some of the things I see and some of the things that, you know, I think we need to be weary about. But yes, I agree. We're heading in the right direction. Uh, we are winning um, and hopefully eventually we will win the entire battle. So let me know if you guys like this podcast. Also, you know, I know some people have reached out to Tim Pool in the past. 
past, you know, wanted me on the show. Um, you know, it would be awesome to talk to Tim Pool and all of them. I know he's had a lot of my friends on, um, you know, on his show to talk about the Second Amendment. I'd love to go on to talk about the Second Amendment. But this is just me trying to add some further context to what's going on in New Mexico and just the broad Second Amendment battle right now in the courtrooms and, and just kind of the culture war, war that we have going on right now in regards to the Second Amendment. Let me know what you guys think down below in the comment section. If you guys are listening to this, make sure you follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. If you're watching this on YouTube, make sure you like, comment, subscribe, hit the notification bell and make sure you have all notifications on because that really does help you to get all these videos. Um, but regardless, thank you guys so much for all of your support. And as always, thank you all for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And never forget this nation was built by arm scholars and this nation will be maintained by arm scholars.